0: Good morning, family of God. The second half of the book of Exodus is really, really, really focused on a tent, on, on the tabernacle. After this amazing, dramatic, powerful story of God bringing the children of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt... And then these dramatic stories of Moses going up on Mount Sinai to receive the law of the Lord. All of a sudden, it's like the pace of Exodus slows way down. And instead of telling these dramatic events, there's an extended section that gives detailed description of this place, this tent, the tabernacle of the Lord. Verses 25, uh, excuse me, chapters 25 through 31 are all about detailed instructions of the tabernacle and various priestly garments and utensils associated with the tabernacle. And then there's going to be uh, a couple of little stories in there for a couple of chapters. And then it'll pick up again, verse 35 through chapter, uh, chapter 35, rather through chapter 40 at the end of the book is all about Moses building the tabernacle. So the tabernacle turns out to be a big deal. Everybody say the tabernacle. And if you've read through the book of Exodus, you may have at times sort of scratched your head and wondered why, after all these exciting stories, does God slow down the pace and give us so many details about this tabernacle? What's that all about? And I like the way that Alec Mott, you're an Old Testament scholar, put it when he said the Bible is filled with visual aids because God is a great teacher. Anybody ever had that experience in school where your teacher's saying they're explaining stuff, you don't know what they're talking about, and all of a sudden there's a picture or a diagram, and it's like, oh, it makes sense. Visual aids. God is a great teacher. And Mottier continues to say the tabernacle is a, perhaps the greatest and most detailed visual aid in all of the Bible. It's this powerful, stunning, majestic object that you can see. And actually, not only can you see it, but as we're going to discuss, you, you can hear and you can smell what's happening at their tabernacle. But everything that's happening there is filled with rich spiritual significance. Now, in line with the point that this is a visual aid, we have a visual aid to go on the screen behind us. So you can look at that the whole day uh, while I'm preaching. And if if you just get distracted, what I'm talking about, just just look at that picture and maybe the Holy Spirit will edify us. Um, that's the tabernacle. Let's talk about what is the significance of this tent? The tabernacle is a constant visual reminder of God's presence with his people. God is with us. This is one of the main themes of the whole Bible. God is with us. God is with us. He loves us. And as we've said frequently throughout the book of Exodus, this is not only a story about God setting his people free from slavery, It's also a story about God setting his people free for the experience of enjoying God, enjoying God's presence and enjoying relationship with God. So as you can see in the picture on the screen behind me, there's all these tents of the great hosts of Israel. And at the center of their life is this big tent and a courtyard around it, which represents the the presence of God with his people. So everybody say God is with us. They couldn't help but remember that because there's a big tent that they walk by every day and they would hear the sounds of animals being sacrificed. They would smell the smells of incense. All of their senses would be um, confronted with this reality that God is with his people. This tabernacle was ordained by God to be a place where heaven and earth intersect in a special way. It's the center from which God's redemptive love is breaking out into the world. If we had enough time, we could go look at a lot of the details described in chapters uh, 22 through 31, excuse me, 25 to 31. And we would see lots of artistic imagery that God is describing You put lots of trees and lots of fruit and lots of jewels and there's angels. And all this imagery has significance. And in particular, the imagery is, I think, designed to evoke the imagery of Eden. You remember the Garden of Eden at the beginning of the Bible? Now, Eden was a safe place. It was a place of shalom, a place of peace in which God walked with human beings and which they enjoyed fellowship with one another It was God's creation where everything was functioning rightly. There was joy, there was peace, there was justice, there was worship of the true God, there was healthy relationships. But you remember in Genesis chapter 3 when human beings rebelled against God and sinned, they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And now this tabernacle is decorated with all this imagery of Eden, suggesting that this place where God's presence dwells among his people The place where heaven and earth intersect is also the place of new creation, the place where the curse of sin is reversed and in which God's healing, redeeming love is breaking into the world to make creation new. So everybody say new creation. creation. God with us means the center of God's new creation breaking into the world. It's located in the middle of the camp. With all these tents surrounding it, which means it's also a constant visual reminder that God is the center of this community. One thing that might be hard for us to wrap our minds around in our day and age is that when we talk about the people of Israel, we're actually talking about a bunch of different tribes. And they were big tribes and they all had their own history and they all had their own cultural identities and they fought with each other. They had wars with each other. Just keep reading through the Old Testament. And you'll see this. They had disagreements that went back to the age of the patriarchs and continues really to the present. And so how are all these tribes going to live together as one people under the one God? And that's the answer to the question. The only way they can live together is as one people under one God. God is the center of the community. And only because they're all related to this center can they learn how to live in covenant relationships of love and justice with one another. So everybody say God is the center And I just feel like pausing to preach real quick for this about a second. Because at the beginning of this time today, I said, good morning, family of God, which we tend to say on Sunday mornings a lot. And it's a constant reminder that if I've trusted in Jesus Christ, God is my father. And if God is my father and God is your father, that makes us family. Right. So everybody say we're family. But family isn't easy, is it? Sometimes relationships are hard. Friendships are hard. Sister and brother relationships are hard. Some of y'all right now in your heart are trying to listen to the sermon, but you just pray and that God will help you forgive so and so down the road. I think that might be happening here. There's pain in our relationships. Amen. The only hope for a healthy Christian community, given that friction that re- exists in human relationships because of sin, given our diversity in all kinds of different ways, the only hope is that we are united by something greater than everything that could divide us. And the thing that unites us is Jesus Christ. It's God himself. And because Jesus is what unites us, we don't stop fighting for those relationships, do we? When it's hard, we keep talking it out. We keep praying. We keep forgiving. We keep repenting because God is the center of this community. Everything associated with the tabernacle has spiritual significance for the people. We don't have time to talk about all the details listed in verses 7 through 11 of this text. But let me just talk about a few of them to give you a, a sense of how this works. Look with me, verse 7 mentions the tent of meeting, this meeting place between God and human beings where we celebrate God with us. And then it goes on and in verse 7 it mentions the ark of the testimony, the ark of the testimony. Let's talk about that. Now, that an ark is just like a big box, a container, but the ark of the testimony is going to come to hold physical objects which are reminders of God's grace and his faithfulness. And his covenant relationship with his people, the rod that Moses and Aaron held that the Lord used to work miracles in Egypt and to, to part The Red Sea is going to go in that box, the tablets on which the word of the Lord, his covenant relationship with his people are inscribed is going to go into that box. So the box is this again, visual aid that reminds the people God has acted graciously in the past. He saved us. From slavery, the God who did that in the past is not going to abandon us in the present or in the future. And God has spoken to us. He's given us his word. So let's live by faith in the word of the God who has redeemed us. It's a visual aid reminding that God is the covenant keeping God of steadfast love. We could skip to verse eight and we read about something which is less prominent, but still important, which is the altar of incense. Y'all know what incense is, the good smelling stuff you burn? Incense fills the surrounding era with a pleasing aroma. It has a very practical purpose. If you're killing a lot of animals, it might have smelled bad if it wasn't for the incense. But here's the thing. If you walk around in the camps of Israel, even if you're not looking at the tabernacle, you can't help but smell it. You can't help but smell it. And it smells good. It's a beautiful, pleasing aroma. The smoke of the incense would rise to the sky and over time the people came to recognize here a a spiritual significance that I think God intended because the rising of the smoke of incense is in scripture repeatedly um, related to the rising of the prayers of God's people. Just mention a couple examples. Psalm 141, two says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. In other words, God, let my prayer rise to you and be pleasing to you as incense is a pleasing aroma. Or in the book of Revelation, we f- frequently read about the prayers of the saints um, represented in these bowls of incense. For example, Revelation 5, 8 says this. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, Jesus Christ, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. It's this beautiful heavenly scene of heavenly creatures worshiping the risen Lord Jesus. And they're holding these bowls of incense. Now, if you think about how that works for the people of Israel, anywhere they are walking around the camp, they could smell this beautiful smell. And the smell reminds him God's presence is here with us, uniting us to himself and uniting us to one another. And he calls us to be a holy priesthood, a people of prayer who pour out our hearts to God and God takes delight in our prayers. In verse nine, we read about the altar of burnt offering. This is a place of animal sacrifice. The custom of animal sacrifice was practiced by lots of pagan religions surrounding the people of Israel But God takes a hold of that human custom and redeems it and uses it as a powerful teaching tool. These animal sacrifices are constant graphic reminders of the fact that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, as Paul says. But God, by his grace, offers forgiveness of sins to his people so that sinners may be cleansed. And welcomed into the presence of a holy God. And this sacrifice is a reminder of a a substitutionary grace. The sacrifice dies. The animal dies in place of the sinful humanity. If you want to read about how the burnt offerings work, you could flip over to Leviticus chapter 1. Verses 3 through 4 say this. If the animal you present as a burnt offering is from the herd, it must be a male with no defects. Bring it to the entrance of the tabernacle. That's the building we're talking about right now, the tent. So you may be accepted by the Lord. And then verse four says, lay your hand on the animal's head. Can you picture that priest laying his hands on the animal's head? And the Lord will accept its death in your place. Everybody say substitute. You deserve to die because of your sin. And the Lord is accepting its death in your place to purify you Making you right with him only through this substitutionary sacrifice are the people cleansed so that sinful people can be purified and live in the presence of a holy God. Now we might say, what, why are we killing animals or what does this have to do? With it?" And I'm going to have to start preaching again because we know that animal sacrifice in the Old Testament is pointing us forward to the one and only sacrifice for our sins. Jesus Christ, our substitute, who bears our sin, who bears our death. And if you're here today feeling condemned and you're like, man... This all sounds great, but you don't even know what's been going on in my life this week. And I'm such a sinner. I'm such a failure. I deserve to die. Well, what scripture says is that's partly true. We are sinners. We are. We have all failed. We all deserve to die. But the other truth you need to remember is that Jesus died our death for us. He bore our guilt so that anybody who trusts in Jesus Christ can be cleansed. And purified and brought into the presence of God so that if you in your heart right now cry out, Jesus, forgive me. You're my only hope. He will cleanse you and you don't have to go do a bunch of good deeds to make yourself pure. God, by his pure grace and love and mercy right now, will wash you and make you clean and bring you back into God's presence as his friend. Verse 11 talks about anointing oil. Anointing oil, which represents this reality that as priests and other leaders in Israel were anointed with oil, God was anointing them with the Holy Spirit to empower them for the special service that he has called them to. We could go on and on about this because all the different elements associated with the tabernacle have symbolic significance. And as I mentioned, the book of Exodus goes into great detail, so... If you want to take a couple months and just study the tabernacle, it would be a rewarding study. But I want to pause right now to talk about, okay, that's cool in the Old Testament, and I can see it's important place in the history of Israel. But what does this have to do with us today as Christians in the 21st century? To help us understand this, we can just sort of trace the biblical narrative. This tabernacle ordained by God served an important function in the spiritual life of Israel until... They made it to the promised land and eventually David's son, King David, his son, Solomon, built a temple. This is not a tent. It's not mobile. It's in Jerusalem. It stays in the same place, but it's a sort of bigger and brighter and more glorious version of the tabernacle doing all the same stuff, all the same functions. When Jesus Christ appears on the scene, the New Testament teaches us that Jesus is fulfilling and replacing Everything that the tabernacle and the tent represented. If you got a Bible, you might flip over to the Gospel of John for a second. John chapter 1 is this glorious chapter about the fact that the eternal Son of God, who created all things, came to earth and lived among us as a human being to save us from our sins. And his name was Jesus. But in the description of Jesus coming to live among us we read in John chapter 1 verse 14 the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us do you see that in your bible John 1, 14. now that verbal phrase made his dwelling among us could more literally be translated from the greek the word became flesh and tabernacled among us the word became flesh and pitched his tent Among us, Jesus is the new tabernacle is what's being said here. When the eternal son of God clothes himself with humanity, he is becoming the place where heaven and earth intersect. He is becoming the place of sacrifice where sinners find peace with the holy God. He is becoming the place of new creation from which God's redeeming love breaks out into the world. Then in John chapter two, Jesus goes to the temple and he gets upset. About the religious corruption and perversity that's happening in the temple. And he flips over tables and makes a big scene. And the people who thought they were in charge of the temple come and complain to Jesus. Say, who do you think you are? Where do you think you get the authority to flip over tables in our temple? What sign can you perform to prove to us that you have authority to do this? And Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it on the third day, in three days. And they don't know what he's talking about. But John says... Jesus was talking about his own body. His body was the temple, which they were going to destroy, but he would be raised from the grave on the third day. In other words, Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the temple, which means the place on earth in which God's heaven is invading the earth so that sinners can be reconciled to God so that the spirit can be poured out with power so that. Creation can be renewed. That place is the person of Jesus. But the news gets even more exciting because as we continue reading through our New Testaments, we find that when you and I trust in Jesus Christ, we're united with Jesus. Everybody go like this with your hands, if you don't mind. Say, with Christ. Everybody say, in Christ. The New Testament uses those phrases a lot. And what it means is we're now united with Jesus. And part of what it means is that In a unique unique way, we become the tabernacle slash temple. Everybody say, "We're we're the temple. And the New Testament says that in a few different ways. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 say this. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Here's what that means. You see that picture behind me, that holy, impressive, beautiful tabernacle thing? That was the place where heaven and earth intersected. And if you trusted in Christ right now, your body is that place. You are supposed to be a walking temple, a walking tabernacle. The place in which God's peacemaking love breaks into the world, in which people see the goodness of God. So Paul is saying, don't dishonor God through all sorts of Sin here, he's talking specifically about sexual sin, but instead honor God with deeds of love, with good works, caring for your neighbors as Christ cared for us. Not only does the New Testament talk about our physical bodies as the tabernacle, but the New Testament also talks about the community, the community of saints as God's temple. So you could say, I am God's temple, but you can also say, we are God's temple. Let me show you one of the places where this happens. Ephesians chapter two. I'm going to read you verses 19 through 22. Paul says this. He's talking to Gentile people who were pagans, but now they've trusted Jesus and been brought into the covenant community. And he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into. And here's the key words grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We are growing into a holy temple in Jesus Christ. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So here, when he's talking about God's Spirit dwelling in us, he's not just talking about it individually, but we together as a community are growing into this vocation to be God's temple on earth, which is to say we're supposed to be spirit-filled Christians who learn to love each other the way that Jesus loved us until our relationships and our community, not life, are such a beautiful reflection of God's presence that heaven breaks into earth here at this place in our community. We are the temple. Now, I took that little side note to help us understand that this visual aid on the screen behind me, this visual aid in the book of Exodus wasn't just for Old Testament saints. It's for us. It's reminding us that Jesus is God with us. That Jesus is the center of our community, that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who gives sinners peace with God, that Jesus is the one who pours out the Holy Spirit to anoint us with power to do the work of God, and that we as the people of Christ are called to embody God's holy presence in the world in a way that draws people to Jesus. Now, once we've started to wrap our minds around that significance, the first half of the passage that we read today Becomes rich with meaning. I want you to look with me again at verses 1 through 6. There's this little story about some artists, some craftspeople, architects, construction workers. Listen to what God's word says. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God. Mm. I want to underline those words. I have filled him with the spirit of God. By filling him with the spirit of God, he also filled him with the other stuff described in this verse with ability and intelligence with knowledge and all craftsmanship. Now, these are wisdom words in the Bible ability, intelligence, knowledge, craftsmanship. That's about wisdom. So, everybody say wisdom. wisdom. The Holy Spirit of God filled Bezalel to give him wisdom to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him a holy ab the son of Ahisamach, it's easy for you to say, Moses, of the tribe of Dan. I, I, I butchered that one. Please don't quote me on how to say that name. Of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability. That's another important phrase. I'll come back to it. everybody. Underline that. I have given to all able men ability. That they may make all that I have commanded you. That's also an important phrase. All that I have commanded you. Now, that's just a short little story about the people that built the tabernacle, and it would be easy for us to read that quickly and then move on. But sometimes in the Bible, there's one of these little passages that you can just skip it, but it's like a lemon. The more you squeeze it, the more it comes out. So we are about to squeeze the lemon together, friends. I want to talk about some spiritual lessons that are embodied in this little story that are taught throughout the New Testament, but this story teaches them in a beautiful way. Point number one, lesson number one is real simple. The Holy Spirit gives wisdom to his people. Amen. Anybody feel like you need some wisdom to know how to live your life? Lord, give us wisdom. Well, wisdom is a gift from God. So if you're looking anywhere other than God, course correction time. We get wisdom from God. We study the scriptures. We pray. We fellowship with the saints. That's where you get wisdom. The Holy Spirit gives wisdom. Lesson number two in this text We see beautifully demonstrated something which fits the whole teaching of Scripture. Namely, this wisdom is for the purpose of creative work God is sending his people to do. The Holy Spirit gives us wisdom and he gives it to us for a purpose. There is creative work. Which God is calling his people to do now, that word creative is one we need to think about. Because we worship the God who is Lord of creation, who made the heavens and the earth. And we worship the God who created us human beings as his image bearers. So according to scripture, what it means to be a human is to bear the image of God. Everybody say the image of God. And to say that we bear the image of God means that we're made to enjoy relationship with God. It also means that we're made to participate with God in his creative work in the world to fill the world with order and beauty and life and truth this was beautifully expressed by a 12th century nun named hildegard of bingen she was a theologian she was a prayer warrior She was kind of a genius in a lot of different ways. She was like a botanist who studied plants and wrote books about healing. She's often called the mother of the natural sciences in Germany, actually. She was also a musician who composed beautiful musical pieces that were hymns to God. And Hildegard wrote this phrase that I want you to think about. She said that as human beings made in the image of God, we are all called to co-create. We're called to co-create. Co-create. I want you to think about that term. What does that mean? Well, God alone is the creator who made all things from nothing. But he made us in his image such that we're supposed to participate with God, to cooperate with God in his creative work in the world. And everything that God creates is good. And that doesn't just mean the things that we think of as spiritual. It means everything good. Right. God made food and it is good. God made our bodies and they are good. God filled the world with beautiful waterfalls and they are good. All of God's world is filled with order and beauty that is good. Now, all of it is also filled with chaos and destruction because of our sin. But as people made in the image of God, we were made to participate with God in cultivating order and beauty on earth for the glory of God and to bless other people. And now as people who have been recreated in Jesus Christ, the spirit of God empowers us for that work of co-creation. So everybody say co-creation. The Holy Spirit gives wisdom to his people. This wisdom is for the purpose of creative work that God is sending his people to do in the world. This work. Moreover, here's the next lesson. This work is creative and artistic. Now, this is key. This creativity Is rooted and grounded in the word of God. It's rooted and grounded in the word of God. Look at the end of verse six. He gave them all this ability so that they might make all that I have commanded them to do. Then look again in verse 11. They're supposed to make all this beautiful stuff. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. According to the command of God. You see, human creativity and human artistry are authentic when they are rooted in reality. The reality of God, the reality of God's word, the reality of God's creation. When we cut ourselves out from God and from his word, we cut ourselves off from reality. And our humanness becomes perverse in a way that we might make something that's beautiful and compelling. But it's leading us away from God's goodness and truth. But the more we live in humble dependence upon God's Word, the more we're rooted in the reality of God and His creation, so that our creativity is truly creative, it's truly life-giving. Now to put this together, here's another lesson. Humble study and obedience to God's Word is intimately connected with dynamic, spirit-empowered, creative work. The two go together. We don't get to choose between being Bible people or Holy Spirit people, in other words. Have you noticed that some Christians like to be Bible people and being Bible people makes them feel very comfortable? But if you start talking about the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit, they get a little nervous and other people start talking about, hey, I want to be liberated to participate with the free dynamic work of the Holy Spirit. um, So don't bring me the dead book. Give me the living Holy Spirit. Well, both of those are not good options, friends. As the people of God, we live according to the spirit inspired word of God. But if we're going to understand this book and trust this book and obey this book, it's going to be because of the dynamic, gracious, empowering work of the spirit of God among us who helps us to understand and believe and apply and live out with power the word of God. The goal of this work, next lesson, the goal of this work, which is rooted in God's word and empowered by God's spirit is to bless people and help people to see the goodness of God. What were they doing this for? They were doing it to create this beautiful visual aid so that people would be blessed by the constant reminders of the good God who is among us. And we as Christians today have been taught by God's word and empowered by God's spirit to do creative work in the world. But this creative work is never about building up our kingdom for our own glory. Or maybe we should say it shouldn't ever be about that. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, it's not about you. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And here's the paradox. Here's the paradox. I'm going to state something that all of us notice in other people and fail to notice in ourselves. You ready for this? People, the more people are self-focused, egocentric, talk about themselves, pursue their own glory, the less interesting and glorious they are. Amen. Amen. Have you noticed that about other people? We notice about other people, but then we get obsessed with pursuing glory in our own life, right? Here's the paradox. I think Jesus said something like this. If you want to truly live and become who you are, you got to die to yourself. Remember what Jesus said? Whoever wants to come after me, he's got to take up his cross and follow me. But then he said, if you love your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life, you'll gain it. The way you become truly human, human, truly glorious is by saying, I'm not going to live for myself. I'm going to live to glorify God by blessing other people, to bless other people by glorifying God. I'm going to practice the freedom of self-forgetfulness. And the beautiful paradoxical thing is the more that we forget ourselves and serve Christ and others joyfully, the more we become the beautiful, authentically human persons we were created to be. Here's another little lesson. I told you, you can just keep squeezing the lemon and you get lemonade, I guess. You get a lot of lemon juice the more you squeeze it. I didn't fully work out that metaphor. (laughs) Thanks, Joshua, for that affirmation, brother. Okay, next lesson here. These goals, these goals of glorifying God and blessing other people. This is so important for us today, church, are not accomplished merely By priests like Aaron and prophets like Moses. They are also accomplished by all sorts of hands on service. Now we have made mention of Bezalel and Aholiab. But then we also have this phrase that I ask you to underline from verse six. I have given to all able men ability, all able men, all able men. In other words, there's a whole bunch of people involved in this project. And what are their skills? Some of them are architects that can draw the picture of how to do this. Some of them are construction workers that know how to get the boards to stick together. Right? Some of them are stonemasons. Some of them are skilled in weaving fabric and embroidery. Some of them are good at the artistic detail work. Some of them see the big picture. These are just human beings with a diversity of gifts. All of which are being empowered by God's grace for God's glory to bless other people. Now, again, we could just make a connection. There's some things in seed form which are made explicit in our New Testaments. If we went to 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12, what we would read is that the Holy Spirit of God distributes gifts to his church. And there's a diversity of gifts. Some of those gifts are things like teaching or prophecy or evangelism. Word gifts and in the body of Christ, sometimes we celebrate those gifts and we should because they're very helpful for building up the body. But there's other gifts called things like service, things like administration, things like giving, things like hospitality. And guess who those come from? They come from God. They come from God. Is it the same God? Do those gifts come from a lesser God? No. Are they less important for the body of Christ? We need them all. We need them all. How many of you guys have had a time in your life where you went over to some really hospitable family in our church like the Domaseks or the Abears or the Garrises, and God just used it to really refresh you? Anybody been there? Yeah, a bunch of people were saying mm across the room. Listen, friends, I was just talking before church to Ale and Kasia and there's people like Greg and Stephanie who are always doing this behind the scenes work. Setup team, cleanup team. First Sunday lunch, they're doing this service that most of the time is invisible to most of us, but it's crucial for the spiritual health of the community. Amen. Yeah. Giving is a gift we need to celebrate because God and his grace and wisdom has given some people a calling in which they have finances that they're able to give generously in a way that funds stuff like the after school program or Christ Community Health Coalition or St. Paul's Community School. And the Bible talks about it as a spiritual gift because it's really important for the body of Christ. There's lots of people who make money in the world, but most of them, most people don't give it sacrificially to bless others for the glory of God. These spiritual gifts are crucial for the health and holiness of the community. A couple quick points before I wrap up here, a couple more lessons here. I want you to notice something that might be really personally meaningful for some of you. These spirit empowered people. God has has been at work in their lives for their whole lives in order to prepare them for what he has called them to do in this moment. He's been at work in their lives for their whole lives in order to prepare them for this. I want to help you see this. It's a little you have to do a little work to see this in the text, but it's worth it. First, look at the end of verse six again. I talked about this phrase a couple times. I have given to all able men ability. Now, that phrase is awkward in English and it's a little bit difficult in Hebrew as well. But the meaning of the Hebrew phrase seems to this seems to be this. I have given to all able men ability. It seems to be saying they were already skilled men. They were already able craftsmen. And now, in this moment, the Spirit of God is giving them a special empowering to consecrate the gift they already had for His glory. Do you catch that? They learned how to work with fabrics, to be stonemasons, to be construction workers, to be architects. They learned that not by some miracle download at this moment. They had been practicing that their whole lives. And now in this moment, God gives them a special, empowering, a new manifestation of this gifting and consecrates it for a new and beautiful purpose. Now, this gets even deeper if we ask ourselves the question, where did they learn those skills? Because what were these people doing a few years ago? They were slaves. Who were they working for? They were working for Pharaoh and they learned how to be stonemasons. Working for Pharaoh. They learned how to be architects and construction workers working for Pharaoh. And they did not understand that what Satan intended for evil, God intended for good. And that in the midst of their oppression and their suffering, God was forging them to be people who were gifted in unique ways. I feel like the Holy Spirit is trying to speak to some people in this room right now. In the midst of your oppression and your suffering, God has been forging you to be people who are gifted in unique ways that now he wants to bless And specially empower and consecrate, not for your glory, but for his. You will be vindicated, but you'll be vindicated not by pursuing your vindication and raging against the brokenness of the world, but by saying, Jesus, everything I have is from you. He doesn't waste our backstories. It's actually becomes even more apparent. Even if we think about the names, these guys have names that mean something. Aholiab means the father is my tabernacle. That's what the name means. The father is my tabernacle. Now, it's possible that he got that name as a nickname after he worked on the tabernacle. But my theory is that his mama gave him that name. And when she gave him that name, she had no idea. But God had an idea. His mama was a slave. Aholiab's mama was a slave. And she had this child. And she or or his father had this idea. Maybe they didn't know it came from God. But he said, I'm going to name this child the Father is my tabernacle. And in the providence of God, this guy, decades later, gets to take those skills he learned in slavery and now, as a free person, use them to create something beautiful for the glory of God and say, and remember, God named me the Father is my tabernacle. Isn't that awesome? Bezalel means in the shadow of God or in the protection of God. And the Psalms frequently talk about hiding. Under God's tabernacle, under the shadow of his protection. In other words, both of these men had been branded by God from birth for something he prepared them to do throughout their early years that they didn't even know they were getting prepared to do. They could not have made a strategy to do this. There was no way. But God is in control. He's in control of human history and his sovereignty goes to the particularities of your life and my life. We got to connect this dot. To uh, Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. Y'all remember that verse? Ephesians two, eight, nine are all about God saving us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We don't do anything to earn our salvation. Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again. So when we trust in Christ, we're forgiven. But now as forgiven people, we're also recreated. And verse 10 says this, for we are his workmanship. And that word workmanship Means an artistic workmanship. You, actually, one translation renders this: "We are His masterpiece," which is a good translation of this word. We, God's people, are His masterpiece. You might feel prideful saying about that about yourself. So turn your neighbor. Say to them: "Say you are God's masterpiece. Are God's masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus, created in Christ Jesus, for good works." Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, which means long before you were born, God was preparing important stuff for you to do. And throughout your whole life, God has been preparing you to do that important stuff. And he's been preparing you uniquely. There is stuff that you've been called to do that I can't do. Santos can't do it. Josh can't do it. Chauncey Morgan. Those people just happen to be on the front row, but also all the other people can't do it. Only you can do what God has called you to do. God did this not only through the blessings in your life, the role models you've had, the mentors you've had, the the opportunities for spiritual growth. But God has even been at work in your life through your pain, even through your failure and mistakes. Remember how God used Moses's failure when he murdered an Egyptian. He had good intentions, but he was immature. And then God used his failure to prepare him for the great work he was going to do with his life. God is using not only your gifts and your privileges and the opportunities you've experienced. He's also going to use your pain, if you'll let him, to forge you into somebody who is uniquely equipped to do something special that nobody else could do. Now, as I'm finishing today, I just want to bring this home right here to Christ Community Church, Oklahoma City, 2019, to talk about what this means for us. Church of Jesus Christ. This Old Testament story is our story because we're part of God's one coming to people. Amen. This is our story. This is our God. And here's what I want you to hear today. The good news of the gospel is not only that if you trust in Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven of your sins and go to heaven when you die. That's really good news. But it's also that you can enjoy a new relationship with God that gives you a new purpose for your life. No life is wasted. No life is wasted. God has a purpose for every one of our lives. This purpose was already at work in the way that God designed you, your disposition, your personality, your tastes, your gifts, your skills. God was at work molding you in your early life before you knew to call on the Lord. But now that you've trusted in Christ, the Holy Spirit uniquely spiritually gifts you. Those spiritual gifts may look like some new ability that was never there in your life. I think often it's more like what we read about in verse six stuff that you already had some gifting in this area. But now God is activating and empowering that gifting in a new way to be consecrated for his purposes. And for some of you, it may be word gifts, but for others of you, it may be all sorts of abilities to serve people. The spiritual gift of service can take a thousand different forms You could be gifted in a way that equips you to be an artist, equips you to be a musician, equips you to be a teacher, equips you to be a homemaker, equips you to be a nurse or a doctor or an entrepreneur or a manager at a store or any other ability that God has given you, not for the glory of self, but to experience the freedom and joy that comes when we take the abilities God has given to glorify God. And to bless people and build his church. So the good news of the gospel is this. We're all important. We all matter. And as you walk with Jesus, he's going to activate these purposes in your life. Now, I want to end with a quick pastoral word. I know some people when they hear stuff like this, they get sort of obsessed with this um, quest to figure out their spiritual gift and to figure out their purpose for their life. Let, Let me ask you a question. Was there any way that Aholiab could have known in advance God's purpose for him? There's just no way. And when the Bible teaches us that God has prepared good works for us to walk in, the application is not next verse. Therefore, thou shalt find a crystal ball that tells you what you're going to do in your future. That's not what the text says. As a matter of fact, my favorite verse on learning how to walk in your spiritual gifting is this. 1 Corinthians 14:12. We should memorize this one as the body of Christ together. The text says, so with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit, strive to excel in building the church. Here's what it means. If you want to see the power of God's spirit activated in your life to serve other people, don't focus on some process of self-actualization. Focus on serving other people. And as you try and serve other people, there's going to be some things that you do that don't go very well for an extended period of time. That might not be your spiritual gift. But there's going to be other things that as you do them, you're blessing other people and you start focusing on. Wow, this is really blessing other people and glorifying God. I'm going to keep doing that. And you discover that God has uniquely equipped you and gifted you in that way. And you experience the joy and freedom of serving others in a way that is with the grain of how God has wired you. But you discover it not through this sort of self-focused journey of digging into ourselves, but through an others focused journey of service. The service is a gift of grace and as we go to the Lord's table, I want to end today end this sermon by reminding you that this opportunity to serve others is not something that we do to earn God's favor. Amen. The, the opportunity to serve is itself a gift of grace. And if you're here and you're feeling discouraged, you're feeling tired, you're feeling like you don't have a purpose. I don't want you to feel a pressure or a burden from today's work. But my prayer for you is that God would rekindle in your heart. A sense of excitement, of purpose, of holy destiny that comes from Jesus. That as you trust in Christ and learn to live in humble dependence on his grace and keep your eyes open for opportunities to serve. God is going to use you in ways that are eternally significant beyond what you can imagine at this moment. Let's pray together. Our father, we thank you for this story. Thank you for your spirit, for the wisdom and the creativity that you give us. I thank you for this community of saints the faithful service that I see them living out day to day. And we want to thank you that your grace is such that not only does it forgive our sins, uh, but it also gives us purpose. And you, by your grace, empower us to fulfill that purpose. And I just do pray. I want to ask you now what I said just a moment ago. For my sisters and brothers, my friends in this church community here. Would you help us to rest in your grace? To cease from fretting and striving, but just to rely upon you and to wake up one day at a time trying to love and serve others. And that that would be the overflow of our joy as your beloved and accepted children. And as we do that day in and day out and there's hard days. You've told us there's going to be hard days. You told us that loving others is going to look like a participation in the cross of Jesus But I pray that the resurrection power of Jesus would be at work even as we're walking in the way of the cross. That we would be renewed and encouraged and transformed. And that we would, as we serve others, we would experience the joy of being co-creators with God. Participating in your redemptive work of making all things new in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.